Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui Billens, and today's episode is with Michelle Kamigaki Barron. Michelle is a PhD student in the Department of Linguistics at the University of British Columbia. She was born and raised in Hawaii into a family of coffee plantation laborers in Hananao, Hawaii. Her research primarily involves speech production and perception, how these processes are changed in the context of bilingualism or bidialectalism of languages that exist in diglossia and the continuous nature of language. She works primarily with the Sequekmet community in British Columbia and also with her own community in Hawaii with speakers of Pidgin and Olelo Hawaii. In her free time, Michelle enjoys swimming in the ocean, spending time with friends and family, eating out, thrifting, and trying to kidnap her dog friends. I really loved conducting this interview. I appreciated so much how Michelle gave so much nuance to the complexity of the language stigmatization and stigmatized communities that she works with and that she is a part of. Um, and also, uh, I'd like to thank Michelle for giving space to some of these ideas surrounding language identity, language attitudes, and the impact that these things have on language research and revitalization. Uh, one thing that she mentioned that I found really striking was how, as language documentators and researchers, we have so much power when there is such a lack of documentation in so many language communities. So she uh, gives a story of one Dutch researcher who wrote a dictionary. And basically, this one dictionary is one of the few resources that the com- one of the communities, the Sequakmet community uses. But because of there only being one dictionary, it's become kind of the like go to and um it's not necessarily like the most inclusive um sampling of data um and some of her research has found that like maybe some of the findings were a bit off so uh yeah i i really appreciated michelle giving some like nuance to these ideas and um just the reminder of like how important diversity in language documentation and language research is. Well, thank you so much for giving your time to the podcast. I really appreciate it, especially since uh, I know you're so busy, like the semester is wrapping up, everything is crazy. Um, but the first thing I wanted to ask you is, can you share with us your linguistics background and how you first became interested in linguistics? Right. So I. I'm currently a PhD student in linguistics um, at the University of British Columbia, right? I I took my first linguistics class in my master's, um, which is at the University of Hawaii. Yeah. And before then, I didn't know, I actually didn't know what linguistics was. I I heard that it was a major, (laughs) but I didn't actually realize that people were doing this kind of work with it. I just kind of thought it was just like, I don't know, something that old linguist did with this like, you know, literature kind of thing. And I didn't really get it. And like, when I saw that it could be experimental or like actually more practical, like, you know, language documentation, these things, like it was more, it was a lot more exciting. And suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I really just, I was doing something else. I was totally in a different field. And then when I realized that this existed, I, 
I like went to the department and was like, please, can you accept me? And then I, for some stroke of luck, like she did. Uh, and yeah, Andrea, the, the professor at University of Hawaii, let me in. And, oh, Andrea Perez Croker. Yeah, it was really, yeah, yeah. And I, I owe so much to her because I wouldn't, I, I don't know. I mean, if she had given me a year to sit with that like impulse, I don't know if I would, I don't know what would have happened. So I just had a lot of luck and like people believe in me for no reason. And <laughs> um, yeah, I I guess it, it's like one of those funny things where you, you're like, I kind of think I always wanted to do this, even though I didn't know it existed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was kind of like one of those things. <laughs> That sounds like fate. Yeah. Like just right place, right time. I think so. And I never looked back. It was just like suddenly I was like I found it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those shiny moments where you're just like, oh, like it's 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 here. Like that's it. Yeah. And it was so nice. It just it was such a relief to finally have something that kind of just like really sat well. And like I can wake up every morning being like, yeah, I'm doing something that makes me happy. Yeah, that's awesome. I think a lot of people have um, that experience where, like, one person kind of, like, gives them an opportunity or, like, one person believes in them and then it completely changes the trajectory of your career, really. Like, yeah. if like if Andrea hadn't been the... I think she was a graduate advisor at the time, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, like, if it hadn't been Andrea, like, maybe, like, somebody else wouldn't have been as interested in what you wanted to research and then, like, maybe you'd be right. a different major right now. So crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I could have just been doing what I was doing before. And <laughs> what were you doing before? I was doing a bunch of, so I was, a, I was in biology and I was working in wet labs. And okay. then I also, I was like taking a break from that because it was really stressful and I was teaching English abroad. Um, but then I was like, I am going to go back to biology because this isn't sustainable for my life forever. And mm. it was still really stressful. And I think I was thinking about like linguistics things without thinking about or like knowing that it was there, like while I was, you know, kind of learning like research skills in a different place. Like in my head, I was just like, oh, like research is only like science research is kind of always just like either biology or chemistry, you know, like mm-hmm. these these kinds of things that were always presented to me. Um, but then it was really interesting to kind of like, I would sort of think about these language things without like, I guess with that framework of what, how I learned it in biology, right. Without realizing that like people were answering those questions in linguistics. Yeah. So that's kind of where the transition kind of made sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Can we talk a little bit about pigeon and like the language, like your experience as a pigeon speaker and like what pigeon is and yeah, yeah, like, I think a lot of people will want to know about that. Yeah. So I guess first disclaimer with positionality or whatever. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I, I'm from the community. I um, and my mom is a pigeon speaker, and her family is uh, from Japanese uh, origin, and they moved to Hawaii for the plantations. My mom uh, actually uh, was a coffee farmer for most a, a lot of, of her childhood, and I also like was just I think I'm the first one who didn't have to do that in my my lineage <laughs> for several generations. So that's there's that. Um, it's so hard for me to talk about pigeon without talking a bit about the history because so much of it is just, yeah, like explaining what it is is just historical in general, mm-hmm. right? Or yeah. like as as it is. Um, uh, so pigeon is a Creole language, right? And so it, in linguistics, we talk about Creole languages, right? As uh, like this, it's basically like a contact language that kind of emerged over time as like a first language. Uh, pigeon came a 
about because, again, going back to plantations, there was this kind of absence of a common language for laborers to speak with each other. And this was kind of situated on purpose because the plantation owners were like, if we're going to have as much control as possible, we just need these people to not speak the same language. Maybe they could uprise against us, right? There's more of them, right? Like people can't organize if they don't have a common language. Yeah, yeah, it was hard. So that, that was actually something that was in place in, in plantations in the States with African uh, s- slaves that were brought to plantations as well, right? And they were saying, okay, well, we'll have them from different places. They can't speak the same language. Um, and so it, they're actually the same players that were uh, the plantation owners there. And when sl- slavery was abolished, they're like, well, we're going to move to some place where we can have cheaper labor, which was Hawaii at the time. So it's really interesting, just these connections. But yeah, it was kind of a common tactic of just how to control. Um, yeah, just like have have the most control as possible, right? Um, it kind of backfired though, right? Because then a language kind of emerged from this, right? So you had plantation workers from, uh, so indigenous people from Hawaii, then there's people from Japan, there are people from Portugal, there are people from China, Philippines, Korea, there, many others, uh, many other groups were there. Um, and at first, right, they, I guess they, they could only kind of speak just you know, a bit of their own language and try to, you know, speak as much as the other language as possible. Like, you know, they're they're just in this place of just trying to make what's best of that that situation. But over time, like uh, this language basically emerged, right? And then uh, the people started to use this language to speak with, you know, someone who's from a different community. And then they could bring that in the home when they're just having relationships with one another. And they can, you know, their, their children were speaking this language at schools with their peers. And so over time, this became a first language that was brought into the home and then spoken. And then what comes with that is just, you know, it, it has some kind of grammar system eventually, right? You'll have these rules without anyone saying, okay, this is, no one's, no one wrote a book and said that these are the ways that you speak the language, but over time, the systematic nature of the language kind of emerged, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the story of Pigeon. Yeah. But I think one thing that I often like to talk about is just that the way that it exists today is just, it was, it's so innate with our culture, I think, in terms of just this, um, this story of as soon as the language emerged, right? uh, It did uh, enable the plantation laborers to uprise or I guess demand for better rights as plantation workers. Um, and so there's this kind of uh, strange, I, I guess the way that exists now is that it's it's still a place of pride in, in our culture, right? But it, it, it still, it does have some stigma that is associated with it. And that's kind of all just kind of wrapped up in history, right? Mm-hmm. So in the 20s, there was something that was uh, called the English Standard School System. And so basically this was, again, um, a group of white people that were from the States that came in and they said, we don't want our children to be going to school with people who are speaking this language, looking this way. And so they wrote a formal letter to the Department of Education in the States. And and they said, uh, we don't want our children to be taught by these kinds of, uh, the the teachers that are the least American in blood, we don't want them to be associated with these kinds of uh, classmates. And so they created this English standard school system, which was basically this way to uh, racially segregate people without blatant mentions of race and language was the core of that, right? So they're saying, okay, if you speak English to this standard, you can go to this elite school, but everyone else, which is kind of code for pigeon and non-whiteness would go to these other schools. And this kind of would 
pave the way of your future, where if you were able to kind of break through this kind of language, you know, um, barrier, if you will, right, you would, you could, you could succeed in ways that other people could not. Um, and so that's kind of like, that's really seen in today's, um, I guess, impression of Pigeon, right? So, you know, in, in one way, it's really great, because you can kind of you can kind of express your values and, you know, I'm, I'm a part of the community. I speak this language. I'm not like those people who exploited us. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's like, it's kind of like if you're speaking this language in schools or in professional settings, it's kind of like, Oh, are, what family are you from? Like, are you educated? Like, are you, it's seen as like improper and a lot of people are hesitating or like, uh, would it be hesitant to teach your kids the language, even if they speak it or, or be embarrassed to speak in, in certain settings because of the stigma, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of seen as like a barrier to acquiring proper English. And then what is going to happen? You can't make money later. You can't go to school. And yeah, so it's just really, it's like this really complex story, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe this is a person, like super personal question, but like, do you see that conflict in your own family? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I my my grandfather told me at one point he was just like you should listen to what was it Daniel Inouye speak because he speaks proper English and one day if you speak like him you can go to college and you can graduate high school like that's like you can be a doctor like you know like um, this was really you know this was told this is just kind of like reinforced and it's it's because they were speakers of the language themselves and experienced so much dis- discrimination and just and barriers because of being speakers of the language mm-hmm. I think my my mom also had these kinds of thoughts of just you know um, even though she's a speaker of the language right I was kind of raised in this mixed family as well so my dad's family is not from Hawaii and so my dad would always be like just don't (laughs) like don't speak that that's wrong you know learn how to speak like me and my mom would kind of have this like "Eh," like like it was just so it's like a strange like conflict right because if I did speak like my dad's family with my mom's family then they would be like what is this white what is this holy thinking you know like Mm -hmm. does she think she's better than us and you kind of learn at an early age, okay, this is where I speak the language. This is where I need to, and this is where I can't. And if I, if I adopt a more like <laughs> accent, like it sounds like I'm from somewhere else, like in the US mainland, then I get better grades. And then some, some people tell me I uh, sound smart, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was just like, really, I think this was such a common theme of just like, okay, in high school, I didn't, you know, like, sometimes I wanted it to be if I wanted to, like, you know, show that I was from Hawaii, I would, you know, try to speak one way. And then try to be like, try to mock my, at the time, boyfriend who was from California, oh, he speaks such a like, he sounds so smart when he speaks. So I started to like, change my accent. Um, and I think, yeah, that's all just wrapped up in this complexity of language attitudes. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. That's so interesting. Do you do any do you do you um like do any research on language and identity like yeah. that? It's something I'm I, really interested in too. I I think it's like a so it's an aspect of my research. I th- so a lot of people have are, done a lot of work with I think pigeon attitudes. Mm-hmm. So I I tend to focus more on I guess the perception like the like acoustic side and these things like phonetic side. Um, but I, I, 
I think there's a lot of importance in like also understanding both. So I think a lot of, so I had um, run an experiment for one of my qualifying um, exams, I guess. And uh, it was an aspect of it because your, I guess your dom- your language dominance is often associated with your language identity and mm-hmm. these things. So I would ask these kinds of questions in the, you know, before they began this, like, um, identification tasks, basically, where they were asked these questions of like, uh, do you like to do these kinds of things? Like, what are your attitudes on, you know, on this language? And like, there's some roundabout ways of getting to that question of basically how you feel about this language. So I guess to answer your question in a shorter way, I do, I am really interested in that question, more specifically how it um, interfaces with language perception and bilingualism. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and what about like just English speakers in Hawaii? Do they also have like is Pidgin now kind of a contact language for people who maybe don't speak Pidgin, but they speak um, like the Hawaiian variety of English? Do people also yeah. are there like also some is there also input from Pidgin into English in Hawaii? Pidgin, yeah, I think that there's input from Pidgin to English, like Hawaii English, right? Mm-hmm. The English, yeah, the Hawaii. Uh, variety of English but so you're asking if like people who are coming from outside like um like let's say like someone who's not I guess there's like so many different (laughs) situations (laughs) like if you're if you don't speak pidgin in Hawaii but you live there and you're like Mm -hmm. uh an English speaker are there like phrases or tokens that you also see from pidgin like that people would say yeah, I think that, that so that's a really interesting question. I anecdotally I've seen this happen. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if it has to do with also just like how much you are willing or like your your attitudes towards the language itself, Definitely. right? And also the utility for you in your everyday life. Mm-hmm. So I know like I have a friend who her husband is is from the Philippines and he moved here he moved to Hawaii and he's working in this like in in carpentry and all of his coworkers a lot of them you know some like maybe half of them are from Hawaii and this is the way that he was explaining it to me he was just like half of us are from Hawaii and half of us aren't but we speak pidgin because it's like easier and also it's it's like what you do when you're in Hawaii right mm-hmm. uh especially if like a lo- if maybe the half of the other people are Hawaiian or local like local people who come from that heritage right so like maybe in that context it's just very natural and you you're not in a situation maybe where it's as stigmatized right mm-hmm. um kind of due to that diglossia situation that I was just describing earlier but I feel like maybe other maybe some people who are just coming for <laughs> grad school mm-hmm. um <laughs> are less likely to want to uh, and less likely to be exposed to it, right? Mm. Um, When I went to the ICLDC conference a few years ago before the pandemic, I noticed that even people who, like white people in Hawaii would say aloha and like use like like mahalo. And I, I remember thinking like, oh, that's really nice. Like even like maybe they don't speak... Hawaiian at like Hawaiian at all, but they like have mm-hmm. some words that like it just felt like um like the language could be used by anybody to me. Like as an outsider, that was my perception. I think another thing to be said with this is that there's so there's Hawaiian and then there's right. like there's pigeon, right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that line is not really clear, right? So mm-hmm. if they're 
if they're saying aloha and mahalo, I think that they're speaking maybe, maybe it's more of like a Hawaiian input. Yeah. Uh, oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, but I wondered if there was something like that with pigeon too, like that I just couldn't recognize. I guess one thing is also that like this pigeon space and the language space in Hawaii is so complex in these ways that it's not as like divided as maybe we would try to present in linguistics, right? Because in linguistics, in order to make these kind of, to study these things, right, we kind of treat these languages as like mutually exclusive. Um, But like the way that kind of the language, I guess, landscape looks like in Hawaii and and as well as well as many other places, right? But like, um, is kind of more complex than I think I tend to, or we, we would like, like to, like to describe it as, especially when we're, you know, drawing like this, this kind of like making this experiment where we have three languages. Right. But like, I think there's a lot of intersection anyway. Um, and so I think like, even if like then the case you're giving where, you know, they're saying like, um, aloha everybody, like, you know, um, this welcome to, you know, the university of Hawaii at Manoa, right. Like something like that. Like, I think there, uh, is like mixture in the pigeon space, at least where, you know, you're using English and Hawaiian words, you're using like kind of that mixture anyway of like other kinds of communities as well. Right. Um, so the question of whether that is pigeon or English or Hawaiian or, you know, like it, it's kind of all of them, I guess. Um, so I guess I wanted to say that maybe, maybe there is space, but it's like, it's sometimes it's hard to even draw those distinctions in the first place in something in a multilingual community is as kind of diverse as Hawaii, Hawaii is. Um, obviously, it would take like a whole other episode in order to like entirely get the complexity right. But I didn't really get a chance to like, and I won't get the chance to kind of get dive deep into like, you know, the Hawaiian language and its history and this whole story of colonial occupation in Hawaii, because that's its own thing. Um, but, uh, right. Like the, the, uh, two languages, Hawaiian and Pidgin are really invariably connected. And I did want just, I guess I kind of wanted to say that Pidgin and Hawaiian are both languages that, um, indigenous people in Hawaii speak, right? So placing bans on these languages or holding on to negative beliefs on either language, right? Ultimately harm Mm -hmm. indigenous people. And Hawaiian does need to be prioritized in the, in the islands, I think, uh, particularly because it was a language that was spoken uh, directly before colonial occupation Um, and learning Hawaiian and speaking it and fighting for the language to have space um, and have value in Hawaii. Hawaii is, is really important kind of as this like, cultural thing right to counter uh kind of like this american assimilation uh but like um likewise i pigeon kind of emerged as a language that was also kind of like a counter hegemonic strategy to kind of um fight against plantation owners right so they have like even though each each language has its own histories that are you know in some ways really different right pigeon is is quite different in in some ways of like the history of stigmatization and devaluation of hawaiian but um they both have similar histories in the sense that right like hawaiian the hawaiian language is also spoken and then there was some kind of like bands uh which kind of w- were placed to kind of control indigenous people and this was these kinds of um uh, you know, the, this kind of control was placed in in not just it's like the legal system and the education system, um, as well as kind of ultimately in social s- spaces. Um, so, yeah, this story is paralleled in the history of Pigeon as kind of like I had, you know, more more time to explain uh, in this episode. But um, I think that, yeah, there's space to advocate for both languages, is, is, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, 
And I think that like maybe uh, it comes down to kind of debunking this mis- misperception of monolingualism being the status quo. For a long time, Pigeon was um, kind of expressed as kind of like this, um, uh, sorry, like a language that prevents the acquisition of English, right? But I think that is kind of rooted in this American idea that, you know, monolingualism is the norm. And, you know, there's a lot of people who will kind of uh, argue with me and say, well, you know, English is really important and it's more important than than Pigeon or Hawaiian because, um, right, it's such a global language. But I think that this conception is, once again, kind of going back to this idea of monolingualism being the, the norm, right? Yeah, like there's only space for one. Exactly. And studies don't support that, right? Like, and, and also just like globally, we don't see that around the world, right? Like maybe maybe that's like something that we see a lot in the States, right? But globally, it's not at all the case that like monolingualism uh, or yeah, for monolingualism to be the norm, right? So I guess... I guess my point is that, well, at least I'm under the impression that there's ultimately space for, you know, languages that we do speak as is. And then there is also space for, um, you know, kind of taking back languages that, you know, uh, to kind of bring back languages into our lineage or uh, kind of bring back or I guess learn languages that you would like to advocate for, for whatever reason. Right. Um, And there's space for that. It's not I don't know, like. Yeah, I think, um, I yeah. Sometimes I, I, I just see those kinds of uh, that. That's often a counterclaim when I kind of make these kinds of uh, when I when I kind of um, have these kinds of discussions. And yeah, I think, I think it's just something that you can see worldwide. You know, kind of there's just like this concept that um, languages need to be pit against each other or something like this, right? Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that context. I, I do want to talk about your other research, your PhD research, but um, very quickly, um, can we talk more about your psycholinguistic and descriptive research and like what that looks like? Yeah. So um, basically, by at this point in my PhD, I've done like two major projects, um, and I'm still kind of working on both of them uh, in, a, in, a, in a large way. Um, so they're not exactly complete and wrapped up projects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the first one is is with Pigeon. And so I'm interested in Pigeon English bilinguals and how they will basically pay attention to different uh, dimensions of the acoustic si- signal. So it's kind of like if you were to be if you were to be a Mandarin speaker, right, you would have to learn how to be really sensitive to tones, right? Um, but then if you're speaking English, you would maybe have to turn that off because if you were listening to, if you're paying really close attention to the tones of every, every syllable, then it would not, it would be too much information. It will actually confuse you more, right? So you have to kind of generalize the tones and when you're, when you're listening to English, as opposed to when you're listening to Mandarin, right? And so the same thing is kind of potentially occurring with pidgin speakers, uh, and pidgin English bilinguals, because there are certain vowels that, overlap in uh, spectral space in uh, in pigeon that are separate in English, but the only kind of remaining cue that's there is duration. So you would think that in this mm, context... Like vowel lengthening? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is kind of something that I've seen uh, in somebody else's production study. And so I'm trying to replicate this on basically... Uh, the perception side and see if it's true that pigeon 
English bilinguals would basically uh, in certain contexts, like when when they're uh, when they have their pigeon mode activated, when they're okay, they're told this is pigeon mode, and they are listening to a pigeon speaker at that time, right? Are they going to be more sensitive to duration? So I have like an experiment where I manipulated um, like beat and bit, and mm-hmm. basically kind of like um, manipulated them on the spectral continuum, and then also on the duration continuum. And then I had one of the professors at UH, who's a pigeon, who's who teaches pigeon, um, did this for me, where he said beat and bit in pigeon, and then said it in English. And then so I took those two and put them in two different blocks, and had listeners basically listen to that and to see if they were more uh, sensitive to duration or to spectral cues in certain blocks, and if there were differences between the blocks. It's still kind of don't want to say things yet about it because it's still kind of a complex, complex story, but that's kind of what I'm looking at. It's really interesting because Hawaiian, so yeah, like, like I guess uh, because pigeon is kind of this in-betweenness of Hawaiian and English in some ways, right? English has duration as a cue to differentiate these two somewhat, um, but Hawaiian, it, but in English, I guess it's not contr- like vowel length is not contrastive, mm-hmm. but in Hawaiian it is. Right. And so it would be really cool if Pigeon had this sort of betweenness mm-hmm. in that regard. So, yeah, I think yeah. that would be really interesting. That is really cool. Um, can you give us a minimal pair of like uh, like a short vowel and a long vowel in Pigeon? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, oh, in Pigeon or in Hawaiian? Oh, yeah. In Pigeon? Oh, either one. Either one. Like what, which, whichever one you're studying. So if you're saying wahine that means like a single woman like one woman not a like one woman and then wahine is like two women and so that's like that contrast i'm not very good at hawaiian so i also hope that like i'm not pronouncing that but in um in in pigeon i guess an example would be so the the word pair that you're looking at is a uh, beat and bit in english right but then in, in pigeon it'll sound more like beat and bit right so the beats stay a little beat off right and so like you have it's a very slight duration difference Mm -hmm. and so i actually can't even detect like um when i listen to it and i measure it um they are different Mm -hmm. but perceptually when i listen to it very quickly um they sound the same it's yeah it's not as um far apart Mm -hmm. as the Hawaiian duration distinction between the vowels. Yeah. So I guess if I were to say that again, so the beats, they are a little beat off. So like one is like the bit is faster, basically. It's like a shorter duration. Yeah. So in English, the beat is a little bit off. Yeah, exactly. So then there's that spectral difference. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's interesting territory to be into because I think – I mean, obviously, I'm really passionate about pigeon, and so that's kind of my main motivation of working with this population. But I think that, like, in broader linguistic scope, I think it's pretty cool because we don't know that much. Of, like, it's just this weird in-between space, right? And we, we're talking about this, like, these spectral continua and duration continua, right? But then this language itself, like, lies on a continua, right? That Because it's, like, this mixed language, right, between these two other languages, basically, and, you know, kind of that evolution process is pretty, it, it makes it kind of this continua. And then there's, uh, it kind of exists this, this, this continua of, um, like, if you're from this one area, and you're going you're gonna to be speaking a variety of 
pigeon that's very much pigeon like mm -hmm. and then if you're having more contact with english uh, and you're speaking you know pigeon in town then you're oftentimes your pigeon itself will be more english like so there's this kind of this spectrum in itself so there's just so much grayness in this with this like space yeah there's just so much to kind of uncover i think mm -hmm. and i think that's really cool when it comes to just i think the idea of bilingualism and also just like yeah what does it mean to code switch when it's like this kind of like like messy space in the in, in the first place yeah yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, in your bio, you talked about um, bi-dialectalism, and that's not a term I like, – I don't know why I'd never thought about it because, of course, people speak multiple dialects. But um, yeah. can you speak a little bit about that? Like is that is that like a new term or – I don't know if it's a new term. Um, I've come across it, but not as frequently mm -hmm. at all, uh, to bilingualism. It's much less frequent, but I've seen it somewhat. And I think it's just kind of this, I really haven't, maybe I haven't seen it that much, but I think that I, I, I adopt this usage of this term because I think that there has been work that has kind of looked at people who will speak two different like varieties of the, what is known to be the same language. Right. And in some cases, pidgin and English falls into that space, right? It's sometimes in, in like certain usages or like in certain contexts, right? Like the two languages might sound really mutually intelligible. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes I think just like the way that pidgin is expressed is like broken English, like people will call it broken English or just like a variety of English, right? And so sometimes because it fits that category, like it does borrow a lot of words from English, right? So there's this innate relationship to English that is not as disconnected from like, if you're saying, um, I don't know, two very, very distinct languages, right? So um, there has been studies done with um, by dialectals where it, it it shows that they will do different things in different, uh, just like varieties of the same language, right? Like if you're, if you're perhaps, I'm not sure if this is a study in itself, but just to kind of like give an example, right? If you're, if your mom speaks like British English, right? And your dad speaks like American English and like, if, if you are capable of speaking both, right, then that's, that's like, that's a, that's an example of bi-dialectalism. Bi and then um, even if you aren't able to speak both, right, you have a significant exposure to both, right? So like, what does that speaker do in different contexts, right? Like that would, that's kind of like code switching, but at a smaller level, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think about that a lot because my husband is British and we lived in the UK oh, before. Yeah, <laughs> we lived in the UK before um, we moved to Seattle. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I get confused, like what I'm trying to say. Like the other day, um, yeah. well, actually yesterday I was in Trader Joe's and I saw this woman wearing this like crazy Christmas sweater. And mm -hmm. I like wanted to, I started saying like, I love your jumper. And then I was like, oh, like back up, like a sweater here, <laughs> don't call it a jumper. Um, oh. Or like, uh, like we just moved. So some of, some of the like parts of my house are just a disaster. And my sisters were over and I was like showing them around the house. And I was like, oh, and this room is an absolute tip. And that means a dump, <laughs> but they didn't. They, I was like, oh, oh like it's so annoying because yeah. it's like you just sometimes you just want to talk and you don't want to have like a conversation about 
the words that you're using. Yeah. So I do try to use the word that people are used to, but then, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm always, like, tripping over my words or... But then when I'm home with my husband, I can say tip and jumper. So that's why it's not getting any better. Yeah, it it's that's really interesting. I think it's meaning that you're yeah, like in the home, right? There's like potentially like home domain. Yeah, there's some code switching going on. <laughs> it also kind of speaks to like so like similarly with language dominance, right? Like this is really similar to how you're like people will express like like their experience with like oh well you know I speak this language at home and then when I'm outside I almost forget like how to say like you know the word in my own this other language even if it was my native language right mm-hmm. like this happens a lot when you're you're like in a it's just like in this context where you're meant to speak one language at one, in one place and one in another place right and so like maybe your language dominance shifts a bit but then it's really cool because i think people there's just been so much less work done on like this space which i feel like is actually more common in some ways right yeah. maybe not maybe it's not more common but maybe it, it, in some ways i think that it's it's just there's so, there's so much more to look at and mm-hmm. i think it's like a very it's not a far it's not a far off concept i think right when you're thinking about that's that's com- that experience being really similar so like cognitively mm-hmm. it must be quite similar in terms of the processes right yeah <laughs> so that's like an interesting question to kind of look at yeah okay so um let's talk about your work with the Sawakmak community how did you start working with this community and are there any um, parts of your research that you'd like to share? I, so I, I got involved with this language community because I took a class at the University of British Columbia. It was, it's a required course with our graduate degree to take field methods. And so every year when they have field methods, they get in contact with uh, another language community. And there's so many in BC, right? There's just a lot of indigenous groups here. There's a lot of languages here. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them um, are under docu- underdocumented, right? So it, there's just a lot of space in BC for doing work like this. Um, and so that's how I got involved. Can you talk a little bit about what you're working on? So basically, this is like a another. I'm really passionate about both of these projects. Um, so this this language, Sikwakmakchin, right, is is um, is maybe currently has fewer than fifty first language speakers. So um, it's a very small at, at the moment is a very small language community, right? Um, uh, in the '70s, this person made this dictionary for the language, and he kind of. Uh, invented this orthography system. Uh, but since then, there was not much, there was not much work done with the language at all. Um, and he only did this kind of descriptive, like, uh, impressionistic work on the language. And so he described this vowel system of having stressed and unstressed vowels. And he he said something in, in one of his papers that said that unstressed vowels will reduce to schwa. And, mm. and so all of them will sound the same. Uh, but then when I was you know, working with these consultants in the beginning and trying to think of a topic, they were saying that that I, I said that sounds really weird. Does that sound no, right to you? And they were like, no, they don't all sound the same. And so I basically recorded them say, you know, these words and and have these vowels in different contexts, and I measured the vowels with like um, just yeah, I took an acoustic measure. So I measured the F one and F two um, and duration, and yeah, I found that he wasn't 
really right. But it was really interesting because so you're not you you are seeing that the non-high vowels are kind of getting closer to schwa, but the high vowels are moving away from schwa. So they're actually oh, raising. Cool. And okay. that's something that you're seeing in um languages like Spanish and Russian. Um and so it's really interesting because that yeah, that's a a, a process that you're seeing in other languages. Um I think Bulgarian was another one. And so it's really interesting. There was this, there was a study done with the with Bulgarian, I think Wooden Peterson, and they found that vowel reduction in Bulgarian is comp- like will consist of the vowel, uh, sorry, the, the jaw instead of the tongue. And so this like jaw movement instead, when it comes to just like expressing stress, right, would just result in different things happening right so you're like in english i think it, it's a kind of common thing to go to schwa and this this person who wrote this dictionary was dutch and um i was told i don't speak dutch but i was told that this happens in dutch as well where it's kind of reducing to sh- to schwa right that central space mm-hmm. and that's that's with this this tongue kind of relaxing kind of process right um but yeah it, it's it's another kind of interesting space where you know this kind of um this work with documentation and really kind of intersects with like acoustic studies articulatory studies and it's really weird because it's also just one of these things where um the community uses this link uh, this dictionary mm-hmm. right with like every day uh and kind of uh when when people are trying to learn the language in terms of right like maybe they belong to the community but they weren't exposed to the language growing up right and they're trying to relearn the language for themselves right um like that these orthography things and these like theories and how they are um i guess written right like these theories are kind of expressed in in like the orthography system Mm -hmm. in, in in a large way right um like that actually has that that potentially does have a lot of repercussions, right? If you're not um, exploring these things and just kind of taking this one guy's word for it, yeah, yeah, like taking one dictionary as gospel, and then new learners are using that to, yeah, yeah, that's oh yeah, that's really interesting. It's so tricky because it's like ethics wise, right? Um, it wasn't an orthography system before, and so this person in the seventies, right. He's like, it doesn't have these like acoustic tools, but he's like, okay, I don't know what his motivation was. I guess. I think, I don't think he was a religious person, but I think that he was like, he had something to do with like, I guess maybe more linguistic oriented, Mm -hmm. but like there are just like a lot of repercussions of like maybe sloppy work done by linguists. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't even mean to say it like, like, I don't know what to say because I, I also feel like maybe somebody in the 70s, like, I, I don't want to, like, really badger on this person that I don't, you know, uh, have much, like, all this context about, like, just to say, but, like, yeah, there's just a lot of things like this. And and I, this is just one little topic that I was studying. Like, yeah. th- there's just a bigger, like, picture when it comes to just, like, I'm sure there's a lot of this stuff happening in this language around the world where, like, one person is basically you know, if, if it's such a, such a small language context, right, you're, you're like, okay, this is one person, that's the guy who wrote the dictionary, that's the same guy who wrote the orthography system, that's the same guy who, you know, has made all these theories about this, you know, right, so it ends up being, yeah, this one person will be very influential on how people will learn the language to come, mm-hmm. and sometimes they take authority over people who are, first, 
first language speakers of the language because of, like I was saying with this history, right? Like Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff with like language colonialism happens everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And language attitudes kind of interact with that, right? Where you're, you're like, oh, well, even though I think like a lot of people are very, I mean, the, the, the community I work with, they're very proud of their language. But I think at the end of the day, sometimes it's still like this, oh, well, this dictionary is, is like the Bible, basically, like, this is like, the way that it is spoken. Mm-hmm. And that is more like, that is more legitimate than like what I have in my mind, mm-hmm. because of like, just like the, I don't know, the school system and like the Western school system and like how that was imposed on, like, I just think that like, this is like the same story that's happening. You can see it in Hawaii, you can see it in like BC. Mm-hmm. Um, like just because, yeah, like there's this feeling that just because something is published in a book, it's more legitimate than native speakers intuition. Right. I think that really speaks to kind of the danger of of like the issue that we're all facing in documentary linguistics where there's there's so much work to be done there's not enough people to do it and so often like you said all mm-hmm. over the world there's like one dictionary or one you know a few texts and um you know this issue of under documentation and um or like fragmentary documentation um yeah it, like it's it's a big problem because then there's just not enough research really to see like okay is this the case or because you know maybe this guy like genuinely believed because of like his own native language like yeah okay everything reduces to schwa but if there's only one guy working on it like you know yeah there's so many biases that we have to confront right like as especially as members that are coming outside of the community that are working within the community like within I guess with the language system right like I think like yeah there's just I, yeah, like you're like you say that it's just like there's so much power in like just uh it's just it comes with just so much of a just a need to be very careful with what you say and to kind of like express it in the way that you're saying I like contextualize what you're actually like what you're studying and how you're documenting it right like if you're only working with a set amount of speaker speakers right like perhaps you have to be really clear that this is one dialect this mm-hmm. is like one age group and like you know like be very clear about all of these things um and maybe also be clear about your positionality right like oh you know they like i coming from the university you know studying you know this language right with these consultants like already puts me in this maybe different position if they were speaking this language with like their students. Right. And mm-hmm. right. Like that in itself, like puts just imp- 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 like imposes some bias that I think needs to be really clear when perhaps when you're writing these kinds of things. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think about this all the time. Like I'm just, I'm curious what the best solution is because there's just so much like, like, like I'm, I think that I'm doing something better than he did right in the seventies, but like, I'm only using the tools that I have. And I'm also like, you know, coming from this with like this language, like the linguistic motivation. And yes, like, I think that like, maybe I'm more aware of some of these biases than we were in the seventies or, you know, maybe, but like, I'm also one person doing like this acoustics analysis, right? And that's also just working with a very small subset. And I don't know, it just sometimes it feels like, uh, yeah, I just, I don't want to make too strong of a claim in any direction, but it just, yeah, 
it's it's really hard to know i think the best approach other than trying to reinforce with like the consultants that their intuition is so much more important Mm. than this dictionary well well thank you michelle so much for coming on the pod where can people find you online if they want to learn more about your work so if you look up my name michelle kamigaki baron um my research gate will come up and i think my website for ubc will come up and you can look at some of my papers and there awesome thank you so much Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ling Field Notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple podcast review. Thanks for listening.